All right, uh, John chapter 1, and in just a moment I'm going to read verse uh, 14. During Christmas time, we spent a lot of time in Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2, which narrate our Lord's conception and birth and infancy and childhood. And it gets into a lot of the earthly, the earthly details of that. But when we turn to the Gospel of John, John kind of reaches back into eternity and approaches the whole incarnation from the perspective of the eternal, divine, and heavenly glory that is actually happening in the incarnation. And so that's where I want to focus our attention this morning. I'm going to read one verse, John 1, 14, although I will, as we go along here, uh, refer to some other verses in the context here. But let's hear what Holy Scripture says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's Word, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for all of Scripture, all of it God-breathed, for our good, that we might know you and walk in your ways all the days of our lives. Father, I pray even now that the Holy Spirit would be present with us, teaching us, impressing upon us the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. John 1.14 proclaims the wonderful truth that the divine glory is revealed through the enfleshed Word, the incarnate Son, who is identified as Jesus Christ in verse 17. The divine glory uniquely shines forth from the Lord Jesus. This glory is meant to be seen, but it is not meant to be seen by a mere passerby who is out for, say, an evening stroll and happens to see a beautiful sunset and has forgotten about the whole thing when he retires to bedtime. The, the, the glory of Christ is full of grace and truth, which means that it is for your good. The, 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 the fullness of the divine glory is meant to be received as beneficial as that which brings salvation and joy. Look at verses 16 to 18. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Do you want to know the Father? Do you want to be brought out of darkness into the light? Do you want there to be a, a sacrifice for sin that enables sinful you to enter into fellowship with God? Do you want to depend on something that is utterly reliable, namely the God who makes promises and keeps them? Then receive Christ. 
And if you have already received him, then continue to walk in him. For rightly did we just sing of him, Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face, with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus Lord at thy birth. I want to I walk through verse 14 in about five, five steps here. So verse 14 begins, and the Word. What Word? What is the Word? What do we know about the Word? Well, it becomes very clear in the opening of John's Gospel that the Word is not a what, but a who, a someone, a person. Look at the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We learn several things about the Word in these five verses. The Word is eternal. In the beginning, harkens back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, right there alongside the Father. The Word is in fellowship with God. It says, and the Word was with God. One, one teacher explained that phrase this way. The Word was God's eternal fellow, bound to Him as His companion forever. John 1.18 shows us the same reality when it refers to Jesus as the one who is at the Father's side, or it could be rendered, who is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus expresses this reality when he prays to the Father in John chapter 17. He prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 17, 5. In the beginning, before the world existed, The Word was with the Father, sharing in the Father's glory. The Word, however, is not only in fellowship with God. The Word is God, as verse 1 continues, and the Word was God. At this point, we encounter a most wonderful reality that is difficult for finite minds to wrap their heads around. In the beginning, God was with God. God, the Word, was with God, what shall we say? With God, the author, God, the source, God, the fountainhead. If we stick with the word word metaphor, we can say that God, the Word, was with God, the mind, and yet the, the metaphor is only a window into the reality, and the reality is that God, the Son, was with God the Father. If, if you want to know the most fundamental reason why we live in a relational world in which human beings hunger for relationships and best express the beauty of character in the context of relationships, it's because the creator of the world is a relational being. The Bible reveals that God is Trinitarian. God eternally and always exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as we confessed in the form of the Nicene Creed. Since the true God is tri-personal, 
This means that God is fundamentally a relational being. Loving, mutual fellowship is essential to God's being. The three divine persons have always, have always existed in perfect communion. When Christians say that life is about relationships, if they're thinking correctly, they don't just mean that life is about relationships for human beings. It's deeper than that. From everlasting to everlasting, the true and eternal life that God possesses, that God is, is characterized by harmonious and joyful relationships within the Godhead. Our relational nature is a reflection of God's relational nature. So, John 1.1 shows us that the Word is eternal and divine, relational and personal, intimately connected to the Father. And then verse 3 teaches us that the Word is the sole agent in the creation of all things. Everything was made through Him, and nothing was made without Him. And this reveals the Word to be transcendently powerful. Whether you're considering the vastness of the heavens or whether you're considering the, the marvels of microscopic cells or anything in between, they all exist because God made them through His Word. And then John 1.4 tells us that the Word is the source of life and light for mankind. The life that the Word possesses is what gives to mankind light and sight and knowledge. Just think about that phrase, in Him was life in verse 4, and the life was the light of men. Light is what enables men to see. If you want to see clearly, you need the life of the Word and the light of the Word. The sun, the Lord Jesus Christ, shining upon you, illuminating your heart and mind, enabling you to see God and to see the world as it actually is. And verse 5 emphasizes that the Word is the inextinguishable light. And so we move to the next part of verse 14. The Word became flesh, this inextinguishable, bright, shining, life-giving, world-making, transcendently powerful, eternal, relational, personal, divine Word. That Word became flesh. This, this is the profound reality that John wants to tell us. And the Word became flesh. The one who existed before the world began became a creature in the world. The eternal one entered time. The uncreated word became created flesh. The one whose divine life was the light of men became a man. One of the verses from O Come All Ye Faithful, which we typically don't sing because it's not in our hymnal, goes like this. True God of true God, light from light eternal, Lo, He shuns not the virgin's womb, Son of the Father, begotten, not created. I love that phrase, He shuns not the virgin's womb. Because this, this verse, John 1.14, is making a vitally important affirmation. 
the true God did not despise the virgin's womb. He did not despise flesh. He did not despise humanity, physicality, creatureliness, infancy, toddlerhood, boyhood, manhood, as an act of life-giving grace to a humanity that was enveloped in darkness, the Word became flesh. Some people would have thought that it was beneath God's dignity to become flesh. Some people throughout the course of history have thought that spirit meant good and flesh meant evil, and therefore they assumed that the God who is spirit would never have even conceived of the possibility of becoming flesh. Many people in the finitude and weakness of human flesh have thought that what they needed was to somehow escape the flesh. Misguided people have thought that if they could escape the confines of their physicality, then they could soar to worlds unknown and finally be free. But the good news of God's grace is not about humanity escaping the flesh. Far from it. The good news of God's grace is that the Word became flesh so that the enfleshed God could bring salvation to enfleshed human beings. Enfleshed human beings, like you and me, we don't need to be saved from our physicality. We need to be saved from our sin. And the only one who is able to save us from our sin is the enfleshed God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, verse 29. The fact that the Word became flesh affirms the goodness of flesh, the goodness of human physicality and human psychology, the goodness of the material world in general. When Paul taught us that the creation groans for its liberation and that we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, that's in Romans 8.23. When Paul taught us that, he was expressing a truth that is fully consistent with John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. And this means that human flesh is inherently good. And this also implies that our fallen human flesh is redeemable. The goodness of human flesh is seen in the fact that it became a vehicle for the revelation of divine glory, as we will see in just a moment. But let's go to the next phrase. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The enfleshed Word dwelt among us. Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, bridges the divide between the invisible God and finite human beings. In John 1.1, we learned that the Word was with God. But now in John 1.14, we learn that the enfleshed Word dwelt among us. And He dwelt among us not in, not in some symbolic way, not in a merely spiritual way or metaphorical way, but in a very physical and tangible and visible way. God's fellow, verse 1, became mankind's fellow, verse 14. God came near to mankind in the flesh so that in the flesh mankind could draw near to God. Do you see? As we sang earlier, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God who had always been with God became a man 
so that he could be with us. Not because us poor sinners had something wonderful to offer him, but because the enfleshed God had something wonderful to offer us, namely a way back home. The phrase dwelt among us reaches back into the depths of the Old Testament and also points forward to the final consummation in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. In fact, you, you could really preach an entire sermon on this one phrase in verse 14, and dwelt among us. That the enfleshed word dwelt among us could also be articulated that he tabernacled among us or he pitched his tent among us. He made his dwelling place among us. And that was always the plan when the word of the Father made mankind in the image and likeness of God. It was God's plan to dwell with his image bearers who were reflecting his glory. And when Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day in Genesis 3.8. It ought to have been something that they welcomed. But in fact, they were terrified at the presence of God because they had just disobeyed Him. They had turned away from His instructions and thus brought upon themselves guilt and shame and fear. And now they wanted to be far from God. But nevertheless, God pursued his plan to redeem a people and then to dwell among the obedient people that he redeemed. After the Lord redeemed Israel out of Egypt, he gave them instructions concerning the building of the tabernacle. The tabernacle functioned as God's dwelling place among the Israelites. It says at the end of the book of Exodus, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God dwelt among his people, but not in the flesh. The tabernacle and the cloud and the fire were symbols of God's presence, but the Israelites could not look upon the face of God. In Leviticus chapter 26, God promised Israel, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will make my dwelling or my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26 verses 3 and verses 11 and 12. God's holy presence would consume an unholy people. But he delights to walk among people who are walking in obedience to him. Of course, although there were individual Israelites who honored the Lord from a true heart, Israel as a nation typically and regularly failed abysmally to be a holy people. But Israel's failure was not the end of the story. If you turn to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what you have is God's people made holy through the blood of the Lamb and prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, living finally and forever in unhindered fellowship with God. The announcement of this grand finale comes in Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place or tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God's plan is to make his dwelling place among his 
forgiven, sanctified, and glorified people for endless ages. Nothing compares to this wonderful promise. But in the middle of all this is the remarkable grace of John 1.14. We understand that God promised to make His dwelling among Israel if they would obey Him, but they didn't. And we understand that in the end, on the other side of the final judgment and the resurrection and glorification of the saints, we understand that God will make His dwelling place among His people. But what was unexpected was for God to make His dwelling among ordinary sinful people in the middle of history. But this is the good news of John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The enfleshed Word pitched His tent among ordinary people in the first century, in Bethlehem, in Egypt, in Nazareth, in Capernaum, in Galilee, and throughout Israel. The enfleshed Word ministered among ordinary people teaching them the riches of God's kingdom and demonstrating its power. The enfleshed word called ordinary people to be his disciples, appointing 12 men, ordinary men, as apostles. The enfleshed word came face to face with demoniacs, with lepers, with the diseased and disabled, with the brokenhearted, with outcasts and foreigners, with poor sinners, all poor sinners. And he brought to them grace, cleansing, and hope. If ever you doubt God's willingness to rub shoulders with ordinary sinners in order to call those sinners out of darkness and bring them into the light of his grace, if ever you doubt that, then take a good look at Jesus of Nazareth. God in the flesh pitches his tent in the camp of sinful humanity and human beings are not consumed. Grace. The enfleshed word is the divine shepherd who chose to walk among his smelly and straying sheep. The enfleshed word embodies the promise of Ezekiel 34 when the Lord said, the Lord promised, I Myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Ezekiel 34, verses 15 and 16. Let's move to the next part of uh, the verse where it says, after And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Then it says, And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John 1.14 proclaims that the enfleshed Word who dwelt among us manifested His glory to those He dwelt among so that His glory was seen. And we have seen His glory. Just as uh, uh, Tom read at the beginning of the service, how even as a babe, Simeon took the baby Jesus into his arms and declared that he had seen the salvation of the Lord in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' glory is unique. It, it, it wasn't like the glory of a mere man who might have been a successful military general 
or a great king, or a skillful musician, or a star athlete. Jesus' glory wasn't like that. The glory of the enfleshed word was set apart from the rest. It's utterly holy in that his glory was the glory as of the only Son from the Father. The glory of Jesus is the glory of the Father's only Son, which is to say that the glory of Jesus is divine glory. Those who saw the incarnate word had front row seats to the divine glory on display. Pause for a moment and ponder the significance of the fact that God's glory is revealed through human flesh. You see, Psalm 19 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. And it's not difficult for us to understand that God's glory is revealed through His mighty deeds, through His miraculous deliverances and provisions, through thunders and lightnings and floods and through heavenly visions. Ezekiel had a heavenly vision of the Lord upon his chariot throne. And Ezekiel said that, he saw, that what he saw was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Moses asked the Lord in Exodus 33, please show me your glory. The Lord granted Moses the privilege of seeing his back But Moses was not permitted to see the Lord's face. The Lord said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live, Exodus 33, 20. In our humble, weak, and unglorified condition, we cannot see the blazing and undiminished glory of God. The sight would ruin us. But here's the glorious truth of the Gospel of John. In the enfleshed Word, we see the face of of one who has beheld the face of the Father from all eternity. And when the divine glory is refracted through the human flesh of our Lord Jesus, we get a God-authorized portrait of His glory. He turns water into wine, John chapter 2. He cleanses the temple. John chapter 2. He heals an official son. John chapter 4. He heals the paralytic. John chapter 5. He feeds the 5,000. John chapter 6. He heals the blind man. John chapter 9. He raises Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11. Behold the Word made flesh, your provider, healer, giver of joy, restorer of life, restorer of worship, He walks on water, calms the storm, casts out demons. He's moved with compassion, extends grace to the unexpected, does not shun those who are regarded as unclean, blesses the little children, washes his disciples' feet, leads his followers in paths of righteousness. The enfleshed word is so intimately connected with the Father that to know the Son is to know the Father. What would it be like to look on the face of God? What would it be like to fix your gaze on His glorious goodness? What would it be like to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, which is the very thing that David aspired to do, as he said in Psalm 27? What would it be like? It would be like taking a good look at Jesus. Hear these words from John chapter 14, where our Lord said, Let not your hearts be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know God truly, savingly, and eternally, then you must know him as he is revealed in Jesus. You don't need to find yourself. You don't need to dabble in religion. You don't need to encounter God in nature. You don't need to empty your mind and center yourself around nothing in particular. All that is pious nonsense. If you want to be saved, you must see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul described the conversion of sinners in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 when he said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this brings us to the final part of verse 14 where it says that this glory is full of grace and truth. The divine glory that shines forth through Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of divine grace, the revealer of divine grace, the deliverer of divine grace for the good of his people. He brings favor and grace, mercy and forgiveness, life and fellowship to those who trust him. Jesus is also the embodiment of divine truth, the revealer of divine truth, the teacher of divine truth for the good of his people. He came for this purpose. He told us to bear witness to the truth. And he declared, I am the way and the truth and the life, which has been well represented in this way, that Jesus is the way to true life. And true life, of course, consists in having fellowship with the Father and with the Son through the Holy Spirit. Following the insight of commentator D.A. Carson, we may also say that the enfleshed word is the embodiment of God's character that was revealed to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34 when Moses requested the sight of God's glory. The Lord's immediate response to Moses in that passage was, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then in Exodus 34, when the Lord actually did pass by Moses and declare his name, this is what the text says. In Exodus 34, verses 5 and 6, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus, the enfleshed word, is the embodiment of God's 
goodness, of the Father's mercy and grace, of the Father's slowness to anger, of the Father's abundance of steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus shows up and the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the poor have good news preached to them. He ate with tax collectors and sinners in the same way that a physician visits the sick in order to bring about their spiritual healing by drawing them into repentance and faith. Jesus embodies the faithfulness of God. All that God promised to do for the redemption of His people, He does through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is wonderful to reflect on the stunning truth that While the Lord provided sacrifices for His people under the Old Covenant for their forgiveness and reconciliation and fellowship, nevertheless, in the New Testament, the enfleshed Lord offers Himself as a sacrifice for the sins of His people, thereby establishing the New Covenant in His blood, His own blood. The enfleshed word is pierced with nails. The divine shepherd is struck, not, struck down. The true bread from heaven gives himself for the life of the world. Truly, the Lord bears the burdens of his people. Truly, the Lord is the one who carries us. Truly, the Lord is the one who brings us home. Of course, the glory of the enfleshed word dwelling among ordinary people and making the Father's goodness, faithfulness, and loving kindness known to them won't do you any good unless you actually receive Him. Look at John chapter 1, verses 9-12. through 12. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive him means to, to take him to, or to lay hold of him as he actually is. To recognize that you owe him everything. To will, willingly, willingly submit to all that he is. To believe in his name and entrust yourself to him. There's nothing mechanical about receiving him. It's not a matter of mouthing the right words or jumping through the right hoops. What it actually is, is this. It's catching a glimpse of the glory of God, the mercy of God, the saving power of God through Jesus Christ, and knowing in your heart that you must have him and all of him. So long as he remains an interesting and inspiring figure that you think about twice a year, You have not yet received Him, have not not yet known Him, have not yet believed in Him, have not yet come to love Him. But when you abandon all other hopes and lean all of your weight on the enfleshed and crucified and risen Son, then you become a part of God's forever family. And for the many of you who have already become part of God's forever family, verse 13 reminds us that because coming part of God's family was not our own doing. Concerning those who become children of God through believing in the name of Christ, John says that these children, in verse 13, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. It is always God who does the saving, who gives us eyes to see and hearts to believe, who shines light into dark hearts and breathes life into dead hearts and imparts grace to depraved hearts. John 1.14 is not something that we ever get over, for it is the gateway to all the blessings of salvations that we now enjoy in this present life, and it is a preview of the future blessings of salvation that we will enjoy in the age to come. For when we are resurrected and glorified with Him at the dawn of eternity and the dwelling place of God is with man in the new heaven and the new earth, we are told that in Revelation chapter 22, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And all that because the word became flesh. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would never get over the, the mystery and wonder and delight of the incarnation and the fact that you have indeed determined to redeem a people and bring us home to be with you forever. Father, I pray for anyone in this sanctuary or who's listening online whose heart is dull, unmoved by these truths. I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would speak life into their heart, that you would shine the light of the gospel upon their soul, that you would make them alive, that you would raise them from the dead, that you would renew them and set them on the path of fellowship with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.